0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge.
1: My name is Matt Mahmoudi. My name is Max Curtis.
0: And my name is Talia Zibitz, and we'll be your hosts on today's show.
1: From social media to satellite imagery and even DNA sequencing technology, the ways of documenting human rights abuses has become increasingly sophisticated. But with all this new information, can we actually make more of a difference, or are there negative implications as well? To
0: help us make sense of this, and how these technologies relate to one another, we are joined by Professor Stephen Livingston. Stephen is a professor at George Washington University, and a senior fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government.
1: Welcome Stephen, and thanks for joining us. It's
2: my pleasure to be here.
1: Let's get the big picture. You in Cambridge working on technologies and its implications for war crime documentation? That's right. One of the uh, great benefits of my being here is it gives me an opportunity
2: to be surrounded by really inspiring and, and smart people to continue the work that I started Uh, at Harvard and then before that at the Brookings Institution and there are other places where we could reach back and say that's the starting point, but basically the idea is this. One of the things that we find is is that many of these events, many of the abuses and war crimes take place out of the reach of direct inspection by human rights advocates. Um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and others simply aren't able to get to one of the places where we suspect something of significance has occurred. And when one looks around, you see that many parts of the world fall under that definition. Certainly, um, the DRC, for instance, the Democratic Republic of Congo, recently had a a terrible, sad experience of two United Nations human rights investigators being murdered uh, in their effort at documenting suspected human rights abuses. So this leaves us with a question, how else can we learn about suspected war crimes and abuses in the absence of actually visiting those places. And that takes us to the kinds of technologies that have been used by human rights organizations now for, well, it depends upon the technology, but 10 years and in in one instance, even longer.
0: Could you summarize? What are the main technologies being used?
2: You know, one of the things that's um, uh, perhaps best to do is to think of these as layers of technology. And you can begin with geospatial technology since uh, 2000, uh, 17 years now. There's been available on commercial marketplace uh, places high-resolution commercial remote sensing satellite imagery. Uh, it began at slightly sub-one-meter resolution, meaning that each pixel was approximately one meter across. This allowed for identification of various kinds of events. From space, irrespective of whether an individual could directly go and inspect the the destroyed village or not, uh, and now as we've gone along for the past 17 years, we are now down to 30 centimeter, 0.3 uh, meter resolution imagery, uh, which to translate that into inches is about the length of a yard, of a of a um, a ruler, 12 inches. So that means that we are able to see in in quite specific level of detail events that otherwise would not have been seen so you can see mass graves uh, you can see destroyed villages you can see uh, as a matter of fact in one instance it was assumed or it was uh, um, determined that there were images of bodies being piled up in a town called Kadugli in in the Sudan in 2012. So there are a number of instances where these kinds of technologies, geospatial technologies are being used, but to completely answer your question, we have to move on to others. There are also uh, uses of digital platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, other kinds of of network platforms, to actually document human rights abuses. Here, you are looking, um, usually with the assistance of computers, you're looking for evidence of war crimes and human rights abuses as they have been documented and posted to, say, for instance, a Twitter account. In other instances, network platforms are used to analyze, where people are invited in, volunteers are invited in to look at a large data Set and unpack and understand what the data set is. An example would be Amnesty International's Decode Darfur. And then, um, as Matt mentioned in the introduction, uh, another final bit of technology that is worth mentioning in this long description would be massively parallel DNA sequencing, where essentially you have benchtop instruments that now have the capacity to, for relatively low cost to, to sequence. Um, small pieces of bone and as long as you have a match of a living relative or some known point of match you can identify a disappeared person from DNA sequencing. So those are among the three it's not limited to that but we could go on much longer than we have time probably here to do if we were to cover all of the ways in which digital technologies are now being used by various human rights organizations.
1: There's another area which is really interesting and emerging. How do you think these technologies in coming together can make human rights violations more predictable, if that's even an avenue that's worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, predictive analytics actually
2: emerges in some measure out of um, fraud detection, for instance, in the banking industry. Uh, it, we all have certain patterns of behavior to our lives, and if our credit card is used in a way that doesn't fit in that pattern, the banking industry has uh, has algorithms that say there's something um, a miss about this particular attempted transaction and and you'll be stopped. So this is one of the places or whoever's using your card will be stopped. Uh, this is in some measure the origin of predictive analytics. Uh, the Defense Department in the United States and probably here in the UK as well use that sort of predictive analytics for their own work and trying to anticipate movements of of um, people who are regarded as the enemy in some sense. Uh, And then now more recently, there has been some, I would have to say for the most part, as best as I'm aware anyway, limited application of this sort of technology by human rights organizations in an effort to try to as you say anticipate uh, the next event one of the clearest examples of this is a move on the part of the remote sensing satellite imagery let me give you a couple of names in particular digital globe uh, black sky harris systems these are all commercial companies and each one of them have as a part of their portfolio Um, big data analytics and what they are attempting to do is use big data analytics and what do i mean where does the big data come from everything from from um, uh, earthquake sensors seismographic analysis to social media trends to news accounts and everything else in an effort to try to predict where they should begin to start taking pictures with their satellites so rather than waiting to be tasked by a customer saying, hey, there's something going on here. I want you to take a picture of it with one of your satellites. The companies say, we're already on it. We're already taking images, You know, collecting images of that event. And that opens up the power of having an archive of before and after a particular event has actually occurred, that's change detection that would allow not only the prediction of an event, but it would allow us to see what that thing looked like, say a field before uh, a mass grave was dug, for example, Uh, so as to be able to track it over the time of its development. Mm The archive satellite archives are, are rather like a wayback machine they're, you know they're a running archive of what has occurred on the surf- surface of the planet over time and there's an enormous amount of data being collected by you know, dozens of high resolution remote sensing satellites and so when you think about that it's rather like having a stored bank of CCTV imagery in in some business where you can see what you know when some unfortunate event occurred
1: so, who actually owns those satellites? Who's collecting that data, and how do you get access to it?
2: By buying it. Um, they are private companies uh, that own it. So, Digital Globe is a private company. Uh, hair Systems, Black Sky, um, Airbus in Europe, you know, it has its own array of satellites. The Russians have. I mean, so there's no shortage of available satellites. And there are variations on the business model. So, for instance, to say that a satellite is privately owned in the context of Russia means something different than it does in North America. Ultimately, um, generally speaking, as I understand it, a private, a, a commercial satellite in Russia means that the state owns the equipment, but it sells the imagery on the open market. Whereas, Digital Globe. Um, has certainly a close tie with the American government because it sells a lot of its imagery to the Defense Department and to the National Imaging Intelligence Agency. But it also sells its imagery to farmers, to human rights organizations, humanitarian organizations, environmentalists, real estate developers. It's a a long list of of customers.
1: And um, who's actually analyzing some of that data? Because what I'm wondering is, say you have satellite imagery of a field, one day there isn't a mass grave, the next day they're starting to dig. How do you tell and analyze who's digging those graves, for instance?
2: Yeah, Max, that's a really good question in terms of who's doing the analysis. And there is no one answer. Uh, If you want to pay for it, Digital Globe, for instance, will analyze that imagery for you. Uh, Or, if you're a human rights organization, one common place to turn would be to Um, uh, other organizations like the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which has on board, on its staff, uh, actually one person is a planetary scientist. So, you know, people who know their way around satellite imagery and proper analysis of, of the imagery. In other instances, you have often former U.S. or other government satellite image analysts who have set up their own shop and they offer their services for In some instances, for free; in other instances, not for free. It depends upon the circumstances. So there's an array of possible analysts. But your question is an important one because it raises the question of who exactly is making the claims. You know, pictures tell us a thousand words, but they're not necessarily the right words. And and we have to be careful about the uh, how much credibility we put into an analysis of a satellite image because there's a lot of room for error. It is not uh, a hard and fixed science, though there are versions of it that are, but often as it's used in human rights investigations, there's there's plenty of room for potential mistakes and error.
0: I wanted to ask more generally about the problem of error with these new technologies. It seems like we have access to so much more information that we can integrate integrate all the new technologies across different platforms, but is that really the case or are they not fitting in quite as well as one might imagine with the existing human rights institutions?
2: No, I think that that's really one of the extraordinary developments. So if you go back and let's just revisit the the clusters of technologies that I introduced at the start of the conversation, there are geospatial technologies, satellites, there's network digital technologies. This is where you have just the bits of information that are floating around various kinds of network platforms, usually social media. And then thirdly, you have these more esoteric ways in which you can digitize material substances, whether they're bones or even documents, which I didn't mention. What is really fascinating to me is how these uh, various technology platforms are coming to merge together and overlap with one another. So for example, not only do you have digital network technologies informing perhaps predictively where to point the satellite images or satellites, to take images, but then uh, human rights organizations are turning to an analysis of social media to look for ancillary evidence, additional evidence that try to substantiate exactly what occurred, what happened that led to these events. And then if it has to do with massacres and massive human rights abuses and war crimes, uh, we haven't seen this so much yet, but I anticipate seeing it, especially uh, should the day come that exhumations occur in Syria or around Mosul in northern Iraq uh various organizations that ha- make it their business to do these exhumations and use this, this equipment i know are using satellite imagery to track and monitor and identify where the where the scores of meth graves have uh, have been created around Mosul and the Yazidi areas and elsewhere. So you have this merging of technology coming together. If I, if I might, I want to just go on and offer a couple of examples. There's, there's an example of one organization in London called Forensic Architecture that makes it its business to look for ways of merging information coming from all of these various platforms just the sort of ambient data that's floating around from a plethora of smartphones and cameras and satellite imagery and and sound and they they bring that those data together to create a composite image of a particular event or um, or an analysis of a case that's unfolding. There are other examples of that, and they're not necessarily large organizations. Again, turning to here in the UK, there's a, there's a citizen journalist named Elliot Higgins uh, responsible for something called Bellingcat. And it's just not Elliot alone, but uh, he and some colleagues are consistent in their ability to bring together ambient data from all of these platforms and combine them together to create a composite image that tells us more about how something happened, who did it, uh, than would have otherwise been possible with simply the old fashioned way of going and trying to visit a site and figure it out from actually talking with witnesses. That's important, but so are the, the data that we now
1: have available to us. And there are of course, you know, private implications of this as well. What happens when there's a private corporation that has access to all this and what they do with it? Like I, I'm sure uh, some of us have heard of Banjo being one of those sort of, where you don't really know what's going on behind the scene and how information can be used. With respect to others using it, I was impressed by Maliki Brown's recent
2: uh, um, report in the New York Times that utilized some of the very same uh, digital analytic capabilities that Elliot Higgins and Bellingcat or forensic architecture use in, in a New York Times report about um, the, a recent, apparently, sarin gas attack in, in Syria. Uh, the New York Times did a really a fantastic job, but it looked like I was watching an Elliott Higgins production, right? Um, uh, so there is that. The, you know, you're know, you starting to see these technologies and this approach to melding together all of the various data sources mm-hmm. into a single platform and a single presentation. You're beginning to see this more frequently um, in mainstream media and elsewhere. Um w- I also understood you to ask something about implications for privacy yeah Uh, yeah, and that is certainly an important consideration Uh, and it depends upon which technology that you were talking about as to how concerned perhaps we ought to be one of the things that your listeners should feel comfortable about is is when they walk outside they 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 don't have to worry about looking up and having their face photographed Mm -hmm. at least with a commercial satellite because that at, at 30 centimeter resolution your face isn't discernible your body looking down straight down on you is sort of a shadow effect on a and a satellite image it, you, you can tell it's a person standing there but um it it, it doesn't at that resolution it doesn't afford the ability to identify you personally there are other ways in which you could be identified personally I would be more concerned here about the CCTV cameras that you see everywhere uh, in Washington DC or London or elsewhere that probably employs facial recognition software that's a privacy concern not satellites at the other end of the spectrum uh, you have uh, massively parallel parallel DNA sequencing that carries enormous implications because even to get consent if i were to ask you to give me your consent for me to sequence your dna that's great but did your did all of your forebearers, did all of your ancestors before you give their consent? Do all of your siblings give their consent? Because by sequencing your individual DNA, I learn a lot about your entire family, sure. and and it's difficult to get individualized consent for that sort of uh, undertaking. Between that, with with massive, I'm sorry, with with network platform technologies, there are privacy implications there that probably deserve their own separate program within the context though of the human rights investigations that we're talking about here um, one of the concerns is that there are some not amnesty international as far as i know not human rights watch and certainly not bellingcat but some organizations rely on for example a company like palantir Palantir is a big data analytics company that uh, has its roots in a guy named Peter Thiel as a, as a funder and an organization that has its roots in the Central Intelligence Agency as a startup. Uh, uh, so the CI essentially gave the, the startup money to this company that that uses its skills and its servers to do big data analytics. So I think that probably it wouldn't be a very good idea for Amnesty to turn to Palantir, and it's not um, because of the close ties that sort of company has with with intelligence organizations. So, sure. so big data invites a lot of possibility, but also some some potential risks.
1: And Palantir itself, I mean, it has a sort of sinister quality about it. I would say because... it has
2: a sinister reputation.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's also named after the uh, the weapon that Sauron uses in Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's not the the best marketing tool, I think. Indeed.
0: So there are issues with regards to privacy and with regards to the increasing convergence with the intelligence community. But it does seem that, in your opinion, the evidence that we're getting by integrating these new technologies is of a higher quality and a lower risk than sending people in to get eyewitness accounts.
2: Well, there are different risks. I mean, if if one finds oneself traipsing around Syria or northern Iraq right now. Um, there are certainly risks involved with that there are risks and benefits of other sorts when you're you're relying on 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 data flows whether they come from satellites or from twitter accounts or from dna sequencing technology it's just that you know, it's it's not an either or. It's a, it's a matter of assessing what is appropriate, what you have available to you at any given point in time. But you know, what's interesting to me, to if we you know could move on to a slight shift here in in the train of the conversation, um, it seems to me that uh, the use of these technologies by citizen journalists, by human rights organizations, has caused some abusive states. To become very concerned, very worried, uh, and, and the reason I say that has to do with the way in which they are responding to the threat that seems to be, in their view, posed to them, to their legitimacy, to their credibility, uh, by a, a fellow uh, like Elliot Higgins sitting, you know, at home or wherever it is Elliot works, and and producing these these assessments of what the Russians have done in Syria or in the Ukraine and Crimea, if you were to, um, I, I don't want to encourage the flow of, of disinformation, let's label this very clearly, but if you were to look at RT, uh, Russia today, or if you were to look at Sputnik, if you were to look at some of the trolls that have trailed um, Bellingcat over the last, couple of years, you'd see a sustained series of attacks against him personally. It seems to me that as best as we can tell so far, whether it's Russia or other countries, one of the responses or two of the responses that we've seen is, one, ad homium attacks. You, you can't refute the information, so you attack the messenger. So there's a well-known RT expose on L8 Higgins where they slice bits and pieces of existing videotape to make it sound as if he is a near-do-well, unemployed uh, fellow who doesn't speak a word of Russian or Arabic, and it sort of blunders around into the space. Not a fair assessment, to say the least. Um, But the point of that is to undermine his credibility and to undermine the credibility of Cat. The second approach that seems to have emerged has to do, and this has been discussed a lot with respect to Brexit, to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. And that is, is that you have networks of, of like-minded websites individuals, whether it's a, a troll factory in St. Petersburg, Russia, or Alex Jones in, a, in something called InfoWars, which is this sort of um, unusual right-wing website in the United States, where they come together with the same storylines. Is that collusion, or is that just simply they, you know, they like the, one another's respective storylines, but they, they sow disinformation. Give you an example. Alex Jones, Infowars, actually claims and seems to have a lot of people believe him that the Sandy Hook massacre of children in Connecticut a couple of years ago was a false flag episode. It was a fault. It, it didn't really happen. It was just a. it was something that actors portrayed so as to give the Obama administration a pretext to take our guns. Um, or in the case of the Sarin gas attack, again, the Russian troll factory as well as info wars in the United States, say, nope, it was a false flag. And, and even Assad said that no, those children were either, it was, didn't happen, or the children that was you know, were seen were actors, it didn't really occur. And so this is an effort at just simply sowing so much disinformation that anyone who doesn't have a lot of time to spend trying to sort this out will walk away and say, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to not pay attention to it. And that's the point that they want. Let's just not pay attention to it. So to go back to your point from a moment ago, the the information has a capacity to tell us things, but there's a pushback on the part of these states that try to undermine our ability to really
1: grasp that reality and, and walk away with some conclusions that are rooted in reality. We've talked about this earlier, and that is states who are seemingly uh, ignorant or decide to ignore the evidence stacked against them. Um, So just to mention an example, Iran, uh, you could gather as much information uh, and verify human rights atrocities or human rights abuse in the country as you like. But once you put this evidence against the state, uh, what's to say that the state is going to change their behavior when there isn't? A national uh, human rights framework in place to be able to take up those claims against the state
2: yeah and in your question actually is, is again it's one of those questions that that you should tuck away because it deserves its own program mm-hmm. um, uh, you know the since the 1980s and and certainly since the 1990s there, there was a period of time in intellectual history in the US and Europe where we assumed maybe falsely, that the world was moving towards a broadly shared set of norms, values, rooted around liberal notions. And by liberal no- notions, we mean that we organize ourselves according to a set of presumptions that the individual is is enjoys certain rights, that he or she has dominion or control over his or her body, privacy, these kinds of things, and that and that the movement of history was towards the enshrinement of those rights. So we have some very well-known uh, in, in, uh, examples of scholars writing with that assumption. Catherine Sakink at Harvard University is one is is one of the persons I would turn to, certainly a, an amazing scholar and one of the most impressive persons I've ever met, um, uh, who wrote a book along with Margaret Keck called Activist Beyond Borders in 1998, right at the cusp of this digital revolution that we've been talking about, where the assumption was is that non-compliant states, states that don't share in that those liberal values, would eventually be named and shamed into compliance with those with those values. So that that a state was sensitive to how it was being perceived. Um, that may not be true. Uh, it may not be true, uh, certainly, of North Korea. You mentioned Iran. I would say Saudi Arabia may be in that position, too. I might even say, perhaps somewhat provocatively, that of recent months, years. The United States may not be counted among the, the countries that are sensitive to international norms and values, at least not the president. Uh, you, you can see uh, examples of where there is simple recalcitrance or indifference to broadly shared international norms. There is concern right now that that Hungary is, is heading in that direction, that Poland is heading in that direction. So, But then the question is Is that really different than it ever has been? Even during the heyday, if you will, in the 1990s, of this assumption that there were broadly shared international norms that we would all come around to, there were some important outliers in the 1990s. Even you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, you, you can look around the, the Latin America and find some outliers. Uh, it, it even in the 1970s, at the presumed golden age era of human rights, where Jimmy Carter was president of the United States, and you know, and and all of the um, the international human rights movement was emerging. Well, this was at the very point in time when you had a guy named Pinochet in charge of Chile, and you still had up until 1983 the Junta in control of Argentina, and you had the the, the wars going on in El Salvador and Guatemala. So even then, you could point to outliers. So I think what we need to do, long answer to a short question, but what I think we need to do is is get away from an inclination on the part of activists and scholars to look for some golden end state where the struggle is over, we can declare victory, and from that point forward, there will never be another human rights abuse. That's not going to happen. Instead, what human rights is about is an ongoing struggle and finding tools that help you, help those who, are, who do share those values, to call attention to uh, to to acts of abuse and uh, and to war crimes. With it in mind, it may not have an immediate use, but I would ask you to keep in mind. I mentioned just a little while ago that uh, Chile and Argentina, you know, those the officers who either did or ordered the disappearances are still on trial and going to jail right now. Rio Mont in Guatemala. You know, is as, as a ninety something year old is still facing the possibility of spending whatever time he has left in jail.
0: You mentioned we should move away from a golden end state, but on a practical level, what kind of uses do you see this data being put to? Um, for example, in the exa- in the instances you gave in Latin America, um, is it being archived for future court cases where we're looking at transitional justice measures, or are we thinking more about action we can take right now to prevent and help with abuses that are currently going on?
2: Yeah, the answer to your question is yes, all of the above. I mean, you could point to a number of examples. Um, The ICC last year had a case having to do with Mali, where remote sensing satellite imagery ended up playing an important role in in a successful prosecution of a perpetrator of abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, right now, the ICC and and national tribunals varying from country to country are are trying to learn to take on board. and to understand how to treat data coming from various sources, so satellite imagery is, is a relatively straightforward one. Certainly, in some juris, you know countries, jurisdictions, DNA sequencing has been a long a part of, relatively speaking, anyway, long a part of of various court systems. Among the challenges, probably that that uh, where you would find the greatest resistance on the part of courts would be how to incorporate. Uh, uh, digitally network information because of the nature of, of of potential flaws in the data itself, so Absolutely. you have to be careful about that. So it depends upon the data, but but there is a movement afoot to actually practically use this information, and that's in a in a um, in a court case system. Um, but you, we should also understand that there are other kinds of courts, as the court of public opinion, where um, in Not in all cases, but in some cases, countries are sensitive to how they're being seen. In the political science literature, uh, this is sometimes discussed in a a subset of, of the research literature called the dictator's dilemma, where authoritarian regimes actually do want to be a part of the international community. They do want to be respected by the, by the global community. And they, they will begin to take steps to, to rectify their image by rectifying their behavior. Uh, this, is, this is a body of research that's actually referred to as the spiral effect. Uh, Thomas Rissa, Stephen Rope, and again, Catherine Sakinke are among the people that you would turn to for this kind of information. So it kind of depends on, on where you're looking and, and what kind of data and what circumstances.
1: Okay,
0: but it seems very actionable among a variety of platforms. Definitely,
1: uh, it, it certainly is. One example we're seeing of that is Eyewitness to Atrocities and how they're cataloging verified video footage so that the ICC might one day, in future, commission all of this data for use in an actual court case.
2: But this takes a long time, you know. Even uh, let's let's turn to a particular example of where a a paper archive, actual documents, were discovered in a warehouse in Guatemala City. These are the National Police Archives, millions of pages of documents that some of them have to do with really non-essential bits of information, whereas others actually convey information that say who was disappeared, who gave the order, who pulled the trigger. Where might we find the body? In those instances, um, the, the effort is, is to get through the documents. And by getting through, I mean that there are, there's a small army of technicians that are feeding these paper documents through scanners that digitize them, which means that makes them machine readable. And this allows the authorities both within Guatemala now, as well as internationally to piece together information that will track down a perpetrator of a murder, of a disappearance. And they may be living in Fort Lauderdale or Miami or somewhere, you know, as uh, sometimes is the case or anywhere in the US or somewhere in Europe uh, and and hold them to justice. There's a very famous Chilean singer songwriter, Victor Jara, who was assassinated shortly after the September 11th, 1973 coup in, in Chile. It's just recently that not only was his direct murderer, but the, but the officer who gave the order, they've been both tracked down. And the last time I knew, the officer was living somewhere in the United States and they were trying to extradite him back to stand trial for Victor Hara's murder. So, you know, these things take a long time. 1973, it was a long time ago, even for me. Um, and I was there. Um, so, you know, this is, this is also a matter of patience.
1: Absolutely. It sounds to me like technologies are giving us a, a lot of new things to think about, especially when it comes to time travel across a different data and evidence for human rights. Thank you, Stephen. It was such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at declarationspod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us. Please subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and join us next week for more declarations.